Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizade, and it's my great pleasure to have Christopher Spade on the episode today. Um, Chris is um, one of the great up-and-coming poetry critics out there, and um, I was I was telling Chris just before we started recording that um, when I thought of doing this podcast, uh, Chris was one of the names that was immediately floating in my mind as an ideal person to have on. Um, and I think we'll all discover uh, why that is um, within the next hour. Um, so the, the, the poet, um, the poem rather that Chris has chosen for us to think about today is The Golden Shovel by the poet Terence Hayes. Um, and uh, that poem we will see contains within it another poem and so um, this will be an interesting experiment for close readings a a chance to think about um, one poem that has at its heart um, another so uh, just as a reminder you'll be able to find a link to the Terence Hayes poem The Golden Shovel in the episode notes you'll be able to find it also um, in the newsletter that goes out along with the episode and um, I'll tweet it out as well when when the episode appears. So look for it there. Um, let me uh, tell you more, though, about our guest today before we get going with the poem. So Chris Spade is a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows, where he focuses on modern and contemporary American poetry. Uh, he's working on a book project right now uh, with the title Lyric Togetherness. Um, and that book, which I've had the, the great pleasure to see bits of here and there, um, and, and more on that in a minute, is, um, is concerned with plural pronouns and collective voices in American poetry from 1945 to the present. Um, and it, it is going to be an important and um, uh, crucial book for poetry studies and for people who care about uh, what it means in poetry to have a kind of collective experience. Um, Chris's essays and reviews and poems have appeared in all kinds of places. He's um, a shockingly prolific writer, and um, I, um, I, I, um, I am astounded at how, how much work Chris has already produced, but they have appeared in places like College Literature, um, where actually Chris contributed to a special issue um, that I, I edited with um, my friend Robert Volpicelli, Bob Volpicelli. Um, that special issue was on the topic of poetry networks, and Chris gave us just a staggeringly um, learned and uh, wide-ranging essay on the poet Adrian Rich, but other things besides. And um, you should look for that look for that um, that article. Um, I'll, I'll link to it for you. Uh, but Chris's work has also appeared in places like The New Yorker, in Plowshares, in Poetry, in the Sewanee Review, and in the Yale Review. Um, and um, and Chris has received fellowships and honors from the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University, from the Keesby Foundation, and from the James Merrill House, where uh, Chris was a 2022-2023 writer in residence. So this is um, another point of contact between 
uh, our guest today and me. I, I was a, a writer in residence at the Merrill House as well. Um, and maybe even there will be occasion to talk about that shared experience during today's conversation. Um, but as I was saying a moment ago, I um, I met Chris and I, I've, I've just used air quotes, which you can't see, of course, but I met Chris when I read um, a proposal that he sent in for a call for papers that Bob Fulpicelli and I put out for the special issue on Poetry Networks. And it was one of the easiest calls we had to make that we were going to accept this proposal and ask for this paper. And then I got the great fortune um, to edit, um, to work with Chris, though he didn't need my editorial intervention at all, really. It's an um, amazingly polished piece that he submitted. Um, and I was so impressed there, and I've been so impressed just elsewhere by this um, capacity Chris has to to talk um, not just about one poem or one poet, but to think um, in a kind of generous and generative way about a mode that poetry can seek out. The examples seem to be right at his fingertips. Um, and he is able to allow readers to see how poems uh, from across periods, um, poems from a whole variety of poets are speaking to each other and um, illuminating each other in, in the work that he does. And he does that without sacrificing attention to uh, particular poems or, or without smoothing out interesting topographical variations between poems and poets. And you wind up, uh, when you read Chris's work, trusting him, um, trusting him to guide you through a poetic landscape um, and to do it with erudition and sensitivity and a light touch with humor even. And I think that critical mode is just authentically part of um, Chris's intellectual project. I mean, it seems... I guess what I'm saying is that the way Chris writes about poetry seems related to his interest in poetry. That is an interest in plurality and collectivity and in what it is to have a consciousness that isn't simply an I, but that might also be a we. I mean, what it is to talk about an object of study um, in a way that um, doesn't simply render it as an it, but might render it as a they or a them or an us even. Um, and that disposition of Chris's is, is reflected in his choice of poem for today. Um, so remember, or for those of you who are new to the podcast, and how dare you, by the way, uh, <laughs> uh, I expect you all to be completists by now. Um, remember, what I do is to invite someone I want to talk to um, onto the podcast, and then I let the choice of poem be entirely theirs. Um, for some guests, this has been a source of great consternation because they think, how could I choose just one poem? Um, and, uh, well, Chris has, uh, cleverly discovered that you don't have to choose just one poem. You can choose one poem that is, um, that contains within it, in this case, literally another poem. Um, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm I was delighted by the choice. Terrence Hayes is, um, as we'll learn today, one of the most important uh, voices in contemporary poetry. Um, and the golden shovel is, uh, just a marvelous and astounding poem and, um, already in its short life, um, now just more than a decade or so old, um, already a very influential poem, 
Um, so um, this is a really exciting episode for me to have, and I have just the right guest um, um, to talk about this wonderful poem with today. Um, Chris Spade, how are you doing? Uh, I'm good. I'm not that of embarrassment. Um, that was an outrageously <laughs> nice introduction, and uh, thank you for wow. saying those things. And yeah. uh, just to deflate it a bit and also yeah, good. Um, compliment your wonderful editing, um, when I did turn in my the first draft of my Audrey and Rich essay, it yeah. had it had a really great typo. I mean, the kind of typo you kind of wish was real, where I was quoting W.H. Auden's famous line, we must love one another or die. And yeah. I instead wrote, we must love on another or die, <laughs> which sounds like it could be, I don't know, a refrain of like some goth sexy dance anthem. I don't know. Um, Did I but, catch this? I don't remember it. Yeah. Um, I think you you were kind enough to not bring it up, and I found oh, I it see. on my own. And uh-huh. I, I lived with that mortification, and it has borne fruit today in me telling the story. Yeah. Well, oh, um, well, yeah. Thank you. But thanks Chris. so much for having me. I'm such a fan of the podcast. I, uh, as I mentioned to you, I think I've listened to every episode, and I, I've at least memorized one or two poems that came up on it because I wanted to carry them around with me. Oh, that's um, so. so that's so wonderful to hear. Probably as it sounds, I was walking around um, over the holidays with my family, saying the line, um, "Prayer, the church's banquet, angels' age," which is a great way to get people to not want to walk around <laughs> you. Um, the shampoo uh, yeah. by Bishop is one I picked up, and then just learning so much about other poets and poems and ways of looking at them. It's been really fantastic. Uh, well, thank you. That means a lot to me. It's been lovely now to see um, a number of episodes, um, you know, racked or whatever in the archive um, that we're putting together here. And just to think of the sort of haphazard anthology that we're forming here of poems, but also of ways of reading poems, of ways of talking about poems. Um, and um you know, I think um, I've not had much to do with it myself. It's this is the podcast is meant to feature the guests, but they've done this marvelous work, and together we've made something. It's it's quite exciting for me. Um, so, well, let's let's talk about um, Terrence Hayes, and um, you know, as I as I like to do at the beginning of an episode, um, I think we ought to um, share the poem with our listeners or let them hear it. And this is one circumstance in which we have a recording um, of Hayes reading the poem. Um, People who are curious, and I would recommend this, in fact, um, perhaps because the poem is so recent and because Hayes is a prominent enough and desired after, you know, guest at poetry festivals and that kind of thing, you'll you'll easily be able to find um, several recordings of Hayes reading this poem. And each one of them is interesting and with slight variations in in its own ways. I mean, I don't really mean like variations in the text, though, sort of, you know, people occasionally um, slip up or change things around in interesting ways in, in live performance. But I mean more in the sort of way poets will preface a poem or contextualize it or the the mood or the tone of the um, performance. So look for those. And, and, and what um, I might do with Chris's help is to give you links to a couple of interesting performances, not just the one we're about to hear. Um, the one we're about to hear was a recording that Hayes made um, uh, during a visit to Harvard, actually, where, where Chris um, currently is, uh, but um, back in 2010. 
Um, so I'll provide a link, but we'll listen to Hayes um, reading the poem. And I guess one thing that's worth saying before we listen is that if you look at the poem, The Golden Shovel, in um, the book Lighthead, where it was um, first published in book form, uh, you'll notice that it's a poem in two parts. Um, there's a Roman numeral one that's given the subhead 1981, and then a Roman numeral two that has the subhead 1991, so 10 years later. Um, and um, I think this is true, and Chris is, uh, yes, Chris, have I got this right, that that Hayes tends to seem to read the first part much more often than the second. And so, yeah. Yeah. When he's, he's, when he read it circa Lighthead, and would mm-hmm. preface it and give the the explanation of how he came to it, which we'll hear in the recording too. Um, he usually launches into this one and doesn't mention that there's a second part. Or what he does is he kind of gives the sense that it's an infinitely reproducible, recreatable form. So he wrote two that ended up in the book, but he he says he wrote a few others. And as maybe we'll talk about later, many yeah. people now have written their own golden shovels. Right. So that's worth saying, too. And yes, I, I think I or at least I hope that we will come back to that idea that the um, the golden shovel, which um, Hayes takes as title, it's a title that he's taking, as we'll see um, from the um, subtitle, I guess, of the Gwendolyn Brooks poem that his poem is in dialogue with. Um, that term has become... Um, the name for a form of poem that other poets have produced. Um, all right, so let's listen to Hayes read, and then we'll we'll talk about it. Here's Terence Hayes. Uh, the Golden Shovel is a poem that's in dialogue with uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, and I use "We Real Cool," which is a poem that everybody knows. I essentially like just wrote her poem sort of vertically, and then I just wrote towards it. So the the poem We Real Cool is buried in it. So if you were to look at this poem on the page, you know, you would see it's in couplets and you could read her poem down the side, but you shouldn't pay attention to any of that. Uh, the Golden Shovel. So in her poem, The Golden Shovel is the name of the bar that the guys go to. And everybody knows that poem too. Right? We real cool, we left school, we lurk late, we strike straight. So that's the name of the bar. And you know, um, my dad would take me to. Uh, pool halls when I was young, even though I can't play pool, but I was there. Uh, The Golden Shovel. When I am so small, dad's sock covers my arm. We cruise at twilight until we find the place the real real men lean, bloodshot and translucent with cool. His smile is a gold-plated incantation as we drift by women on bar stools with nothing left in them but approachlessness. This is a school I do not know yet, but the cue sticks mean we are rubbed by light, smooth as wood, the lurk of smoke thin to song. We won't be out late. Standing in the middle of the street last night, we watched the moonlit lawns and a neighbor strike his son in the face, a shadow knocked straight. Dad promised to leave me everything, the shovel we used to bury the dog, the words he loved to sing, his rusted pistol, his squeaky Bible, his sin. The boy's sneakers were light on the road. We watched him run to us looking wounded and thin. He'd been caught lying or drinking his father's gin. He'd been defending his ma, trying to be a man. We stood in the road, and my father talked about jazz. 
how sometimes a tune is born of outrage. By June, the boy would be locked upstate. That night, we got down on our knees in my room. If I should die before I wake, Dad said to me, it will be too soon. So that was Terrence Hayes um, reading The Golden Shovel. Um, Chris, uh, I just want to ask you in a very general way, like, what do you notice? And I mean, this is a poem you've read many, many times, I know. It's a poem you've written about. Um, so you've studied this poem, but you've just heard it uh, again. And uh, what thoughts were running through your mind as you listened? What What do you notice about this particular performance of it? Well, it, it is a poem I have read a ton. And it's a poem that I've been revisiting as we approach recording this episode. And it still yields surprises for me. And it still offers mysteries. There are phrases and word choices in this poem that I think I, some of them I, I think I got a hold on today, <laughs> walking to my office uh-huh. or trying to recycle the poem in my head and play it over. Yeah. But what jumps out to me about that recording is this very modest joke he has when he's introducing the poem. We'll probably mm. get into some high-level stratospheric topics when we talk about this poem. We'll talk about, I don't know, literary history. We'll talk about how poets influence other poets, how poets carry forward other poets' work. And yeah, he maybe. gets a bit into that, and then he says, but you don't need to worry about that. I know. And then, I mean, he's being modest, but it is kind of true that he's written this poem that does this virtuosic formal tr- trick of including another poem, and it totally also just works as a story. It works as a narrative, which is a hard thing to do. I mean, I think maybe we assume that sincerity and the tones of naturalness come easily, but yeah. it's a it's an artifice that takes a lot of work to make. Uh-huh. Um, it's a, almost as though when he set himself the formal requirements for this poem, it wasn't just, oh, let me do this cool trick. I'll put the words of real cool down the margin and I'll fill those in. You, you know, he also the mo- set himself yeah. the assignment. Oh, sorry. No, please, was, you first. I was just going to say he set himself the assignment of maybe I'll try to make it sound like it, like it happened. I'll try to convey the tones, the narrative gestures of someone telling a story from his childhood, maybe passing it along to a son. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I was thinking of the line from um, Yeats's poem, Adam's Curse, uh, where the speaker says, I said a line will take us hours, maybe. Yet if it does not seem a moment's thought, all our stitching and unstitching has been not, right? The mm-hmm. idea that the line may take hours, but it wants to sound natural as you were just saying and that that requires a kind of labor but i want to yeah so i i I was struck by the same thing in the intro um his kind of sheepish description of um the technique that goes into this act and then um a dismissal uh but you, you don't need to know about all that and i'm intrigued also by your not simply dismissing that moment of self-deprecation as a kind of pose, but in thinking, well, in some way, that's right. You don't need to worry about all that. Um, that That's interesting to me. Um, but I, th- I think we might be doing our audience here um, a disservice if we didn't maybe begin just by describing, and in particular, since 
Well, a couple of things. I've noticed that when Hayes introduces this poem, and you could hear it even in the recording that we had just now, he says things like, oh, you all know the, the, the We Real Cool poem. And he, mm-hmm. and he gives it the most kind of flippant, We Real Cool, We Less yeah. Cool. You know, he doesn't, even, he doesn't even finish it this time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that is a, a very anthologized poem. It is as far as poems go. It is about as it's a poem that children are likely to have encountered in school at some point. Um, we can talk more about it in a minute, but, but I think it might be a mistake for us to assume that everybody listening to us right now knows that poem. So that's one thing. Um, and then the other thing of course, is just that, well, if people are listening and not looking, you might very easily miss the trick that he's done. Um, Mm -hmm. he describes it briefly, but maybe we could describe it a little more fully. Chris, could you explain what the form of the golden shovel is or what's interesting about it or what it is that, you know, just, just sort of setting the scene for us here. What has Hayes done with um, the, the text that he's working from? Yeah, I'd love to do that. And now I guess I really have to confront the fact that I've gamed the system of this podcast and I'm (laughs) talking about two poems at once. Um, should we so, listen to the to the Brooks? Because I have a recording. Do you is but, the, is yeah, now would, the time? That would be great. It is kind of like bang for your buck. Some of the greatest poetry you can get per second in yeah. American poetry. So yeah. let's take okay. a listen. It's it's very brief. But so if you don't know, we real cool the poem by by Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, listen up. You're about to hear it. Obviously, there will also be a link to this poem. But then Chris is going to tell us, which I think. Unless you were looking at the page and and paying attention to what Hayes said about it, you might miss the fact, you might miss the thing that Hayes has done with this text. So this is Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, and it's a poem she wrote, what, 1960? Is that right? Yeah, Chris? published 1960. Okay. Here's Gwendolyn Brooks. We real cool. The pool player seven at the golden shovel. We real cool. We left school. We... Lurk late we, strike straight we, sing sin we, thin gin we, jazz June we, die soon. And that's it. Okay. That's it, yeah. Uh, well, um, all right, Chris, t- tell us what Hayes has done. So what Hayes has done is he's taken what I think may very well be the most anthologized American poem in the 20th century. I know mm-hmm. people have kind of tried to count this. Mm-hmm. Um, he's taken We Real Cool, a poem that is taught in schools everywhere, which is kind of a delicious irony because it is totally. a poem about kids who leave school. Right. Um, he's taken this poem that's 24 words, all monosyllables, um, written in a choral voice of seven pool players at a bar called, a pool hall called The Golden Shovel. Mm-hmm. Uh, a poem where these speakers together kind of give an accounting of their life. They very proudly and unabashedly speak in a vernacular, non-standard English. It is not a poem called We Are Real Cool, which right. would be a totally square poem. Mm-hmm. Um, they brag about uh, how they've left normative places of safety and education. They, they lurk late. They strike straight. I mean, it's almost hard to talk about the poem without reciting it because mm-hmm. it's such an economic mm-hmm. um, choral self-presentation. Um, mm-hmm. It's a poem that ends abruptly after these kind of comic panel images of their life. 
uh, we jazz June, and then in a perfect rhyme that feels almost deterministic, that it can't be avoided, we die soon. Mm-hmm. Which I find very haunting that it's in the present tense. It is not, we will die soon. It's so inevitable. Mm-hmm. We die soon. Mm-hmm. So what has Hayes done with this? He's taken these 24 memorable, memorized words. Uh, he's For the moment, he set aside the, the subtitle, which is the pool player seven at the golden shovel. But he'll, he'll use that in a way mm-hmm. um, as garnish. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And he takes the 24 words of Gwendolyn Brooks's poem. And he kind of strings them down the right margin of a page. Almost as though it's occurring to me now, if you were writing a poem in, in rhyme, if you were writing a sonnet, you might come up with the end rhymes first. Right. And then or if you had to... a sestina or something. Exactly. Maybe, right. You'd oh, want to completely. plug those words in at the end. Yeah. yeah. A sestina, I mean, assuming you got your first six lines in order, you right. know what the next 33 lines are going to end with. And you right. know kind of where those endings will fall. So Hayes uh, t- takes... I guess, the horizontal path of uh, Brooks's poem, and he lays them vertically on the right margin, and then he fills in lines such that each line will end with one of um, the words from Brooks's poem. So the first line ends with the word we, the second line ends with the word real, the third line Mm -hmm. ends with the word cool, and so on. Yeah, Exactly, yeah. Right. It's funny, in a few accounts of writing the poem, he mm-hmm. refers to this as an exercise, which I think is a, a yeah. very like canny genre for this. Um, yeah. It's an exercise that a poet would do, kind of, I don't know, to stretch and flex your poetic muscles. It's also kind of a school exercise. It's, right. here's a poem I was taught in school. Here's a poem I think I know. What can I make out of it that's different, that both borrows from and adapts the material I'm working with? Yeah, it's just it's something you could absolutely imagine setting before a a child and saying, um, write write a poem that ends, you know, th- whose lines end with these words, and and they could come up with all kinds of things. Um, and I've heard Hayes <clears throat> say that part of the genesis of this poem too had to do with that kind of scene. In in fact, that he um, had. Um, um, tasked his son, was it, with memorizing the Gwendolyn Brooks poem, and for that reason, it was on his mind or something, and then he started playing yeah. around with it. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, for a poem about fathers and sons, it kind of has an amazing father-son or even grandfather-father-son origin right. story. He mentions in the intro to the recording we just heard that the opening scene is calling on memories of going to pool halls right. with his father. Um, or it, I think it actually yeah. is a stepfather, um, who he, he is his father. Um, and then the other part of the origin that comes out in a few readings and in his foreword to an anthology we might mention later, mm-hmm. um, Hayes mentions he wants his kids to learn poetry. Um, uh-huh. So he picks, uh, he's an older daughter, he assigns her a Langston Hughes poem. A five-year-old son, he assigns him We Real Cool. And they develop this nightly ritual before bed. Let's Let's get these words out. Let's Let's sing along to We Real Cool. Almost as though they were the prayer at the end of this poem. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a, f- well, yeah, the story that he offers of the poem's conception, it shows up in the poem, I think, in a few ways. Yeah, um, okay. Well, so then after doing this with his son a bunch, I think he got the idea. Um, well, maybe the not only the son will memorize a poem, but the father will get a poem out of it. And he started tinkering with this right. form. 
So I, I was going to say, um, I, I was going to preface my next comment by saying, okay, but before we leave the Brooks poem entirely behind, but it occurs to me that we won't ever really leave the Brooks poem entirely behind because we'll always have its words exactly, sort yeah. of swimming around in our conversation today. I guess I, I, I just want to, uh, um, this is kind of uh, an observation of mine that I'm not sure what to do with, but I think you might have something to um, sure. teach me about, which is that um, we've described the way the line endings look in the Hayes poem, right? Yeah. Just, you, I asked you to do that. Bec- oh, well, I asked you to explain what Hayes was doing with the Brooks poem. And in order to do that, you had to tell us what the right hand side of yeah. Hayes's poem looks like. Um, uh, one of the m- more conspicuous things about the Brooks poem is, is what its right hand margin looks like, right? So um, you hear it in her recording and in the way she tended to read this poem, which is that, um, you know, so if the, if her poem goes, we real cool, we left school, that's kind of how Hayes read it in, mm. in that sort of Almost rhythm. Almost nursery rhyme-like. Right. She doesn't read it that she way. She does not, no, yeah. The we's come at the end of her. Those are in terminal positions for her, all except for the first we, right? Every mm-hmm. other we comes in that sort of terminal position. Is that right? Yeah. Um, um, so there's something, I don't know. I mean, there's something kind of funny about what she's either doing with enjambment there, because those we's are all like heavily enjammed, right? The sure. subject of the sentence apart from the rest of the sentence. And the we being this kind of... Um, bell that keeps ringing uh, almost like a, a you know a typewriter getting to the end of the line you know and then before mm-hmm. advancing down to the next um so I, I i don't know what the question for you here is chris but it's something to do with like uh what's going on with the right hand margin and does it have something to do with um, well i don't know you tell me with temporality or with um with rhythm or with um destination rather than origin or i don't know what 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 does that make you think of? oh wow i think it, it's all those things mm-hmm. um so you might have to also <laughs> teach me about it um it is yeah it's it's one of the most distinctive strings of enjambments in american poetry that i can mm-hmm. think of you could imagine a version of the poem that is formatted the way that hayes offers it yeah um that's very neat and orderly and the sentences end with periods and the the lines end with those right, right. sentences. Instead, what she's given us is a poem that's that's shifted ever so slightly off kilter mm-hmm. with very odd rhythmic and grammatical and emotional ramifications. So right. after the first we real cool, every other we is kind of just perched on the edge of white space. Right. Um, these are subjects that don't know their predicates. <laughs> or uh, they're, yeah. they're, um, that's beautiful. Subjects that don't receive a a stress. They don't come at the the first. Uh-huh. I mean, they don't receive um, primacy of place in the line. There's yeah. this quote of Brooks's um, that I really love about this we, and she was asked about this poem throughout her life. Of course, it became kind of like a greatest hit that people would you know. It was her free bird, <laughs> right. except a very short free bird. Yeah. Um, but one account of the we that I really like is from her her first autobiography report from part one, where she writes, and I, there's a good pun. A meaningful pun in this. The ending we's in We Real Cool are tiny, wispy, weakly argumentative Kilroy is here announcements. Mm-hmm. The boys have no accented sense of themselves. 
yet they are aware of a semi-defined personal importance. And then she has this, I love this, it's kind of like, I don't know, musical directions on a score. She says, say the we softly. Um, the pun is that there's, there's no, yeah, there's no metrical accent on the word we. It's as though personal identity or even group identity is kind of pushed below the, the outrageous and eye-catching activities these pool players get up to. Should we say what Kilroy was here means for people who don't yeah, know? And yeah, and there's a, some of her other statements about the poem. She puts it in similar and varying terms. Kilroy is here. I don't know. Now I don't know if I can explain uh, well, it. It was kind I, of a graffiti written yeah. by U.S. soldiers in That's Vietnam. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, and World War II, actually. World I War think. II, sorry. Yeah, is, is, where, is where it begins. And um, and I guess its meaning is um, maybe hard to explain, but it, it does sort of, I guess, um, what it isn't, I guess, is somebody writing their own name in a place. It is the sort of yeah. um, entering into this kind of um, group identity and a mere assertion of presence, right? Um, and of a presence mm-hmm. that is no longer present, right? Of a, of a, of a kind of past presence whose right. residue almost is still there almost yeah, yeah. inscriptive yeah 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 uh, um uh, uh, all right so so i now i have a, a a question that maybe is a transition um that more will more directly take us into the Hayes poem which um it's it's time i think we do the the um under the title the golden shovel hayes writes that his poem is quote after gwendolyn brooks that's all it says in the book and I want you to talk to us about what the word after means. <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, I think this usage really shows up in poetry more than anywhere else. I didn't mm-hmm. know if I found it anywhere. But he's writing after her in two senses. And he's also writing before her in one sense. Um, he's writing after her chronologically. Um, right. She is a poet born in, I think, oh, no, now I'm on the spot, 1914? Uh, yeah, that um, sounds about right to me, but I don't know. We'll look it up. Yeah. Um, now I'm going to be one year. <laughs> guests who looks things up. Oh, 1917. Horrible. I'm really uh, sorry. 1917. No, you, how dare um, you? Sh- yeah. She's a poet whose first books come out during World War II, who is already winning Pulitzer Prizes, the Pulitzer Prize in her 30s. And then around the civil rights movement is really vivified and learns from a lot of younger poets. Um, mm-hmm. And so her books in the 60s will be dedicated to figures like Amiri Baraka, uh, to James Baldwin, whom she mm-hmm. uh, mentored and, and taught. Um, she's a poet who lives through the civil rights movement and is changed by it, and is maybe drawn to younger figures like the figures in this poem mm-hmm. um, because of the, the social ferment of those times. Terence Hayes is born, I know this one, in 1971. Right. Um, he is a post-civil rights uh, mm-hmm. era poet, or at least after the, the events, if not the aftermath of those years. Um, and he's someone who is given many models for how to be a, a Black poet. Um, Brooks is one of them, Baraka, and the Black Arts Movement, and his, uh, I guess, comrades and compatriots in that group is another um, model. Robert right. Hayden, a poet who Hayes responds to a lot, is yet another model. So one thing I think the poem is trying to figure out is how do I write after these poets? Can't I carry their traditions forward while also finding moments for dissent and variation and eccentricity? Mm -hmm. Um, The second way it's after her is this is the usage that shows up in poetry. 
um, if you're signaling that your poem is is taking after a specific poet or poem, then you say you're you're after them. Um, and maybe that too is you're kind of lining yourself up in the tradition. Um, so a kind of citational practice them. or something yeah, exactly. a scholar might say, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, the yeah. way it's written before her is, yeah, right. is that um, all of his words, all the words he contributes to the poem will show uh, up before her word right at the end. Um, and, you know, I've thought about this poem a lot and I've, I've kind of yet to come up with one good way, and I think there's maybe no one good way to explain the relation between these two poets and well, these what, two poems. What you just said, Chris, uh, it makes me think that w- the thing he could have done that he didn't do that would have at least superficially been like the thing that he did do mm-hmm. is to write it like an acrostic poem or something, yes. p- sort yeah. of string her words down the left-hand margin. And, and, and there, what you've just shown me is that what he would have been doing is writing after her in a third sense. Yeah, yeah. But instead of that, it's like he's writing the sort of prehistory of her. He's writing a prequel, in other words. Exactly. He, right. She literally gets the last word in every line. I mean, right. I guess that's one way he's set it up. Right. Um, I mean, one way, Hayes is an extremely musical poet and has written yeah. great poems on everyone from uh, David Bowie to Cool Keith to Kendrick Lamar. Um and his and poems I guess, have their own musicality. I mean, oh, boy, yeah, do they. and we'll yeah, get into yeah, it in this one. Yeah. I mean, one way I think of how these two poems are interacting is that Hayes's words are kind of like the the hi hat, the clicking hi hat you hear uh-huh, a lot, and then uh-huh. Gwendolyn Brooks's word is like the kick drum on yeah. B four, uh-huh. and that's where that's where the two line up is is on her word, her salvaged reuse word. Yeah. Um, that's great. The word he uses, and well, maybe we can come back to this at yeah. the very end. The word he uses to describe the relation is her poem is buried in his poem. Right. Um, which, again, I, I mean, maybe speaks to the, the peculiar decision of putting the poem on the right. It's, it's really kind of pushed in there. It's not prominently displayed up front. Right. Buried makes me think of, um, well, like, I don't think he means it, or maybe he does in the sense of like, you know, in the way the dead are buried. But I think it, that's it, how, I mean, yeah. It, it also, I mean, the exactly. other way, sorry, the only other thing I would say is like, treasure is also buried. You yes. Know? Well, and also it's a poem called The Golden Shovel. Yeah. <laughs> and it is a poem about digging things up and storing things inside things and what lasts. I, I, and... We've, we've made it almost 40 minutes into the podcast and we haven't talked about the first line of the poem yet. So. Uh, yeah, let's do it. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it seems to me that right from the beginning the in a poem that is sort of formally and in every other way thinking about questions of inheritance and so on the poem begins by positioning the poet in relation as a small person in relation to his father's immensity or something so yeah. um could, yeah you want to you want to talk just about the opening lines of the poem chris and what you're seeing yeah, in them sure. and what we should notice about them Maybe I'll just read this one, this sentence out again. Great. Um, just because I, it th- helps us understand, or it teaches us maybe how to read the poem. When I am so small, Daz Sock covers my arm. We cruise at twilight until we find the place the real men lean, bloodshot and translucent with cool. Um, so mm-hmm. there, things line up enough that you can hear the cool in the Brookline mm-hmm. be real cool. He, now that he's taught us that, he's not going to make it that easy again. Right. Um, what I first noticed in these lines, um, especially as I've revisited the poem this week, is I know exactly what 
kind of difference between father and son he's talking about. I remember putting my dad's socks in my arm. Um, Uh This playful gesture, kind of like sock puppets. Um, Uh It is a poem about following after people. um, And it is a very funny gesture of not quite walking in someone's shoes, I think, to put a sock on your arm. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going to follow after you, but I'm going to do it in a playful, disproportionate way. I wonder even there's this long tradition in uh, among poets of um, punning on feet as yeah. mm-hmm. um, a kind of rhythmical um, unit of measurement. And yeah. this might be a funny sort of displacement of that, like putting his hands in some where, where someone's feet once were. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's that, I mean, I think it works because it's both this, the clever place we jump to and it kind of has the sensuous vitality that you can kind of just immediately imagine. Right. Um, and and he calls his father not his father or his dad, but his da. A DA. Yeah. yeah. Is Which that is what, like more familiar or something? I don't know. More familiar and I think more southern. I'm we yeah. got this far in the poem without I I guess explicitly saying things like this. Um and maybe that's for the best for what reasons I can explain. But Hayes is a, a black poet. He's a man, he's from uh South Carolina, and he feels very uh, ambivalent about these things or ambivalent for any one of them to stand for all of who he is or for huh. any one understanding of any of these things to stand for who he is. Um, this is one place where I think the Southerness comes out because I, I don't call my, my dad dad. No. Actually, I had to hear him read this poem a few times to know how to pronounce it. Um, yeah. Which maybe proves how much of a Northerner I am. It's like dad with the final D dropped, right? Yeah. That's what it sounds like. And dad. it suggests up front, it suggests such familiarity and warmth. It right. suggests a warmth with the person and it, and maybe a warmth with whoever's listening that you know when I say dad, you know who I'm talking about. But there's also a kind of mixing of um, uh, temporal point of view between, you know, mixing of the adult poet who's having the memory and the boy um, whom the memory is about. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's, in, it in does very cool narrative tricks. In 1981, he would have tricks. been 10. Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Um, so yes, when he, we get to the pool hall, um, we can kind of see Hayes dipping in and out or weaving between his childhood memories and his kind of distance current narratorial vantage. Um, we find the place, the real men lean. Mm. I, <laughs> I love that what, I mean, already he's kind of troubling what makes a man or a real man by breaking the line on real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I love what, I think actually there's something very accurate in it. What makes a real man is that he leans. Uh (laughs) Um, It brings to mind images like, I don't know, like posters for The Color of Money or The Hustler or uh, Uh movies with a cool pool player. And that is a pose of coolness. Um, yeah. But I think it's also a poem about people who lean on each other. Um, already we have a son who's kind of leaning on his father's experiences and who is going to be led through a world of adulthood with his father and through his father's experience. Uh-huh. Um, but it is a spooky place because yeah. the real men are not, they're not cool in, um, I don't know, the ways we might expect. They're cool in an almost ghostly, not quite alive way. They're bloodshot. And they're mm-hmm. translucent, um, bloodshot, mm-hmm. with its I don't know maybe violent words nested inside blood and shot. Translucent with cool. I mean, I guess it's kind of cool to be translucent, but uh, <laughs> it doesn't have like the the physical 
immediacy of, of the first line of having a sock on your arm. Well, um, leaning as a pose is a way, I mean, it's not standing there with your chest puffed out, right? It, it, is, right. Um, it, is a, it is a way of standing that is halfway towards lying down, or not, maybe not halfway, mm-hmm. but a quarter of the way or something, depending yeah. on the angle of the lean, so that there is something kind of, I mean, what makes it cool to lean is the um, appearance of nonchalance, that's mm-hmm. kind of mixed with the um, stature of, um, you know, uh, a big person's kind of asserting of their of their space. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Hayes it, has something like that affect when he reads the poem. He's like he does, leaning yeah. against the podium <laughs> or something. Yeah, he yeah. is a tall guy. So yeah. <laughs> he is, yeah, leaning on the podium. And now, I mean, it's now bringing to mind all like the leaners and loafers in American poetry. Oh though. yeah. That's um, great. Whitman. Whitman. Yeah. Um, it is, I think to not get too bogged down word by word. And I That's do think okay. it's kind of a word perfect poem. You really can, right. you can lean on it about any word and find great things. I think already the poem is showing us how it's taking figures and scenes from Brooks's poem mm-hmm. and it's drawing its alternate paths. Um, this is not a, a poem where the first men, the first boys we meet are yelling <laughs> or are exultantly shouting, we real cool. Right. The men we see, they're leaning. They're keeping their distance. We're mm-hmm. actually not going to hear any words for until maybe the middle of the poem. Mm-hmm. The next sentence, again, we're going to, well, I'll just read it out. Please. Uh, we're going to find another group of people who are kind of, they're okay. They're, they've got things covered. His smile, this is his father's smile. His smile is a gold-plated incantation as we drift by women on bar stools with nothing left in them but approachlessness. This is a school I do not know yet. Um, his smile is a gold-plated incantation. I think in this world that's a bit underworldish, a bit spooky. Um, his father's smile is like the warding off spell. Um, he's not translucent. He's glittery and, and shiny with gold. And he's leading his son into this world where there's adult men and women, there's drinking, there's smoking. Um, and, and maybe the but it's gold, not dangerous. Maybe the gold calls us back to the golden shovel of the yeah. title and of the name of the the bar in the in the or the pool hall in the Brooks poem. But now mm-hmm. it's on his father's yeah. tooth, a gold plated tooth or something. I yeah, guess. That, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, you're revealing to me how perfect an image it is because of the shape of a shovel on the outside yeah. and a tooth kind of with a similar like a miniature version of the same thing yeah yeah um, um uh, the the line this is a school and then we get not just a line break but a stanza break uh you know a break between couplets this is a school i do not know yet um you know one thing that i'm thinking about chris is in the in the reading we heard um, from Hayes earlier, it it was a reading as so many readings of poetry are that was being done at a school and yeah. um, not just any school, but Harvard University, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in the Brooks poem, it seems like the attitude that's being um, evinced or articulated by that we is one that is um, dismissive of the kind of education that you get in school. We left school, right? Um, mm-hmm. We're here mm-hmm. instead of being in school. Um, and um, 
and I don't want to, I don't want us to presume. I mean, this line, this is a school I do not know yet. Um, seems to have some sympathies with that position that I just described in the Brooks poem, but I don't want to presume that it's identical to it or, or that it's quite orienting itself in the same way to the institutions that are our schools in say this country or Mm -hmm, others like mm -hmm. it. Um, So what, what, yeah, like what's the attitude towards school that you're getting in that line Um, or um, I don't know, any observations you have about that line I'd really appreciate. Yeah, it's a line that that does a maneuver we've mentioned before where we've been at child eye level. <laughs> we've right. walked past the bar schools, stools. We've seen uh, women who aren't approaching us. We aren't approaching them. Um, and then we're going to zoom to the present tense to this clear-eyed sense of, of uh, one person's growth. This is a school I do not know yet. One day, maybe I will learn what it's like to be an adolescent or adult in a pool hall. I'll learn, maybe I'll learn to flirt. Maybe I'll learn to hang out. I'll learn to hang out with people like me or unlike me. Um, I think what it does, and in one way, I guess I would call it a deviation from the Brooks poem, is it really does consider this a place of learning, a place of, I don't know, self-fashioning and growth. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a school. If you leave the line at that before the line break, you get a very affirmative mm-hmm. sense of, I mean, this is a place that helped make me, me. It turns out, as we'll move through the poem, we'll see a, a really stark contrast. It turns out the pool hall is maybe the safest and most educational huh. place we'll see, and well, maybe until the room at the end. But mm-hmm. areas that we would think aren't transgressive, that we would think are safe and protective, can have violence erupt within them. Um, it's it's a to me it seems like a very clever clever way to reverse what we think about transgression and the need to leave school to grow up. Um, it also it, occurs it, to me that that like a t- yeah I think that's all beautifully said and just right. But and um and so you know if in the Brooks poem the we there like the pool hall is um, a rejection of school. This is instead like um, another version of school or a different school differently imagined maybe, but yeah, it um, might even be a better school. I mean, it's a school where you learn how to, to interact with other people, but I was going to, yeah, you identify difference and well, it's maybe a school where you learn to make a, we that's crosses generations and crosses difference. So, so much of what, um, well, and I mean, that is in a way so for a 10 year old who enters a new building, you know, a 10 year old who has been probably to one or two or three different schools in their life and has had mm-hmm. to graduate from one to the other, from kindergarten to preschool or, you know, from preschool mm-hmm. to kindergarten, from kindergarten to elementary school and maybe to junior high or something, or, you know, middle school, um, entering a new building thinks like, it must be a school. I don't know this yeah, one yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sure. Yeah, at it's some like a new emotional level. level. Right. It's a new level in the video game of my life. Yes, I'll, I'll I, level up here in some way. Yeah, yeah I get right. that totally. Um, then we get a, a line that really confuses me. Uh, I mean, it's beautiful, but I don't understand it. And and so I've as I've thought about this poem, I've always been drawn to it. But the cue sticks mean we are rubbed by light, smooth as wood the lurk of smoke thin to song. Um, so the the but there suggests, a, you know, whatever is about to come is contradicting what had come before or is qualifying yeah. it in some important way. I don't get that. I also don't get what the cue sticks mean we are rubbed by light 
might mean. I mean, obviously that's that sounds like poetic language to me. And so maybe I'm grasping needlessly after a precise kind of meaning. But I can you help us make some kind of interesting sense of of that of those lines? Yeah, sure. And and I also would like to get to the rest of that line, because it is a um it's a very unassuming moment, but it's one of my favorite parts in the book. Well, take us there. So this is a school I do not know yet. And then all of a sudden, as you mentioned, we go into a different register. It's the 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 tone and the tactics of of arguing or or playing something over in your head with the word but. And then we also have um I think the language, I guess, of like literary interpretation. Um, mm-hmm. But the co- the cue sticks mean um, mm-hmm. we are now kind of not only taking things in, but we're trying to understand uh, what they'll mean for us, what an image means, what an experience means. The cue sticks mean we are rubbed by light, smooth as wood, the lurk of smoke thinned to song. We won't be out late, um, is the rest of that line. Mm-hmm. What I think is happening here is Hayes has has kind of stepped back from the moment, this autobiographical experience, or at least a speaker has. And he's wondering what of it stuck around for him, what meant something to him as a 10-year-old. And I think it's this really vibrant and almost synesthetic sense of sense impressions he had there. Um, already mm. we've seen a bit of this. We've seen shiny gold plates. We've seen bloodshot men. But now we have this really immediate tactile sense of, I don't have a pool key, so I'm going to use my iPhone, <laughs> of, of rubbing nobody, something. Nobody yeah, can no see gonna... you anyway, Chris. <laughs> okay. So as yeah. you all know, I keep a pool cue in my office. And um, I think he's remembering kind of the uh-huh. glint off of the cue. He's, he knows kind of the feeling of it. That's something yeah. he can recollect decades on. Um, and he even can re- recollect the thing that's supposed to be bad about a pool hall like this, the secondhand smoke, mm-hmm. he can remember that kind of dissipating and turning into something that transcends it, that it thins to song. Um, like I just gold love the to airy thinness beat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, he does this, this beautifully, or he enacts it beautifully with the sounds of that phrase, where we, we get these kind of hacking, coughing Ks, and they turn into these nice nasal ends, the lurk of smoke thinned to song. Um, the bit I love is then he says, we won't be out late right afterwards, yeah. which to me is something that no 10 year old has ever said. <laughs> uh, um, I don't, unless you're, I don't know, like a cartoon character, like Nancy or Sluggo, you don't say things mm-hmm. like that. I think it's one of a few moments in this poem where adult language is seeping into this kid. Yeah. He's hearing his dad say to his mom, yeah. oh, don't worry, we won't be out we late. We won't be out late. Yeah. It turns out that's, this is all we're going to see of the pool hall. And we've gone through an experience which maybe posed possibilities for danger, transgression, and it turned out to be song-like. It turned right. out the smoke in it thinned away. Um, so, and I think, well, yeah, and then on. just one last thing. Yeah, the word please. light will show up a few times in the poem. One says lit. And this does feel like, I don't know, maybe poetry 101, a too easy correspondence. But I do think the poem is wondering where it can find light, where it can find grace, where it can find illumination. It is ending up in a book called Lighthead, which does play with that word and image a lot. And so maybe the last way to explain these lines is he's had this experience in a dimly lit nighttime pool hall. Where was the light in it? And it turned out it was was right in his hand. It was actually something very immediate. Well, Lighthead suggests 
both maybe a kind of enlightenment or yeah. you know illuminated state of consciousness but of course also a state of disorientation or vertigo yeah, or to be lightheaded yeah. um i i want to confess to my own disorientation at this that comes at this moment in the poem so we won't be out late and then the poem sort of shifts scenes standing in the middle of the street last night we watched the, the moonlit lawns and a neighbor strike his son in the face um so we got a description of that scene a bit more or some thinking about that scene and the disorientation i want to confess to is that i don't know how many readings of the poem it took me to process that that scene wasn't temporarily after they come home from the pool hall or something right right yeah. it, or or oh, that's so you know yeah, that's so it's, it actually seems to yeah. be before it or, so, or i don't know what it last is night it, is think. in reference to you know last with respect to what the the night previous to to the night at the at the pool hall i guess i don't I know i think it is the night previous yeah to the night at the pool hall it's maybe almost a, a retroactive explanation of why why did we go to the pool hall why am i spending this father-son time yeah um it's because i saw a different kind of father-son time yeah it's because uh there was this so yes talk to us sin- about this 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 yeah. scene we got next yeah well it is one of the the amazing deceptions of the poem is that it, it gets you to think it's about a pool hall and then after nine lines we're not going to be there anymore I'm mm-hmm. um, standing in the middle of the street last night. It's very oddly cinematic with these moonlit lawns. And we see mm-hmm. in stark contrast, a neighbor strike his son in the face, a shadow knocked straight. Um, as I mentioned, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes back, Hayes <laughs> is someone who, who thrives, I think, on uncertainties and ambivalence and knowing that there's always alternate paths for his poems to take. And not only his poems, but for people to take, for Black Americans to take, for a Black poet to take. And this poem, I think, it handles that in a few ways. And one is that there will be doublings of pretty much everything we see. So after we've had this uh, scene in the pool hall with a father and son, we're going to see a very different, a shadow um, version of a father and a son, where instead of uh, wearing my dad's sock on my arm and playing pool together and lining up in all these ways, we have a we or we have a, a father-son duo that's antagonistic. Um, even as the son is his father's shadow, he needs to be, in the eyes of his father, knocked straight. Mm-hmm. How that, I think your confusion is something worth holding on to because how it gets, how we get from something that seems like such a perfect father-son moment to its exact opposite, I think is something the poem wants us to wrestle with. And the characters mm. in the poem will try to wrestle with too. Mm. So maybe I can just read the very next lines, which yeah. also kind of take Good. us to yet another scene or yet another interaction between a father and a son. So right after the shadow knocks straight, we have this. Dad promised to leave me everything. The shovel we used to bury the dog, the words he loved to sing, his rusted pistol, his squeaky Bible, his sin. So... Mm. Again, how did we get from that? How did we get from mm-hmm. witnessing a moment of violence to, oh, um, the first big, I guess, speech act in a character in the poem. He's, my dad is promising to leave me things. Mm-hmm. Leave me things when? When what? I think it's, I mean, I think Hayes is giving us that stereotypical, much 
described and represented moment when you have to explain to your kids what death is. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes up, we were kind of told secretly or told, I don't know, obliquely because a dog has died, the shovel we use to bury right. the dog. But then once you get that one practical object out of the way, we get the f- the floodgates open up and we we learn about all the things that fathers can leave to sons. The words he loved to sing um, were, I guess, foot, or I don't know, putting an asterisk on mm-hmm. this moment because it's a, a meta moment of handing down words in a poem that's using handed down words. Then his rusted pistol. So it, his father is someone who has capacities to harm, but also to defend. Um, he has a pistol, but he's not taking care of it, which is tells right. you, I think, a lot about someone's relationship to those things. His squeaky Bible. I'd love to talk to you about squeaky Bible. Um, yeah. So we have, I don't know, again, a kind of literary thing handed down, the written word. Um, it could be squeaky clean. It could be squaky because it's been used all the time and the binding is making a noise. I would think a, a, a binding that is making noise is a binding that hasn't been <laughs> used. Yeah. You I know, mean, that it's squeaky it is, because it's new, you know? This or, is exactly, right. oh yeah. When I mentioned that there are things in the poem that I finally felt like I got a, a handle on today, mm-hmm. one of them was the word squeaky, actually. Oh, um, what did you get a handle on? Well, for some reason, when I read the poem this week, it immediately brought to mind... Um, like a hotel Bible. Do you yeah. know how they kind the... of have that plasticky outside? Mm-hmm. Gideon's Almost Bible. Is... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know why they, I don't know when that started. I tried to Google plasticky. I Googled squeaky uh, Bible actually. Uh-huh. And I got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, my primary association with Gideon's Bible is um, the Beatles' Rocky Raccoon, you know? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, okay. So squeaky, um, his sin his sin that doesn't get an adjective it kind of just well we had rusted pistol squeaky bible and then i think his sin I, which lands at the end of a line yeah it's something i think the poem wants us to sit with and maybe it's gesturing towards um you know in the whatever judeo-christian tradition mm-hmm. the the sin that we've all inherited from our first father <laughs> so the story mm-hmm. goes yeah um uh, but it seems maybe more um, particular and yet mysterious. I mean, we don't know anything on the basis of this poem anyway about the nature yeah. of the sin. This doesn't seem like a father who's been obviously sinful in some way that the poem is recording or complaining about or um, elegizing. He hasn't. And actually, if all we had was the first nine lines, he'd seem like a kind of awesome dad. And yeah. Takes you to the pool hall instead of right. doing your homework. But he brings um, you home not too late. Right. You know. Um, but then I think after we're exposed to the, this alternate path to a way things could have gone with the neighbor and his son, it seems to me to open up something in the father where suddenly he's not the silent, smiling figure he was in lines three and four. Mm-hmm. He's someone who's who's kind of offering a lot and in the moment trying to come up with something to say to his his son about what's going to happen after he dies um dad promised to leave me everything at first sounds like um a kind of gesture of generosity you're going to get it all could i i'm i'm not yeah. you you'll get but then it, it maybe sounds like um an inevitability you yeah. know for better or for worse 
you will be left with all of me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, not, not, not because I've written you into my will, but because you're my son and, you know, that's what happens between fathers and sons. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think the way you've, you've just opened up that line for us, it maybe explains the jump to that line after watching mm-hmm. a father hit a son. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing that, the poem, and I think this this very sympathetic dad is trying to figure out right now, is um, do things like violence get passed down? Do things like trauma get handed down? Um, is what my my son just witnessed um, this moment of familial friction or just straight up violence? Um, is it something that will get left behind? Well, the um, boy, the the boy, or I don't know, the adult poet then returns to that scene uh, of violence, right? So mm-hmm. after this sort of brief interlude that has to do with the the inheritance from dad, yeah, we're back to the boy's sneakers were light on the road, um, uh, and um, Hayes. I'm sort of using Hayes here as a placeholder for whether it's the the sort of adult poet, the 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 child that the the adult poet once was or some composite of the two is um, speculating about what might have led to the scene of violence that had just been witnessed. Um, What do you, what should we notice about um, this, the, those lines, Chris, that lead up to, but maybe don't quite yet include the very final lines of the poem, which surely we'll want to talk about before we're done. Yeah, here, I'll read them just very quick because I do really like them. Um, And they show off, I think, a very distinctively Hazian move. Mm -hmm. Before I read the sneakers line, I do think another thing Squeaky is doing is rhyming with sneakers. Mm -hmm. Um, A little internal rhyme. Yeah, I know. It's an internal rhyme. I I mean, I'm all for rhyme. Mm -hmm. We could leave it at that. But (laughs) um, it does make me think of there's this phrase Seamus Heaney uses for, for what keeps his poems together sonically imagistically emotionally he calls it the binding secret and i do mm. think there's a bit of the binding secret between squeaky bible and sneakers i love light it on the road i love it um, because I'm sneakers t- are supposed to be squeaking up Bibles, yeah I think. On, yeah on on, and, on a on a basketball court or something yeah right? yeah exactly right. okay um, so i'll read it mm-hmm. um we've had the daz promise and then these lines the boys sneakers were light on the road We watched him run to us, looking wounded and thin. He'd been caught lying, or drinking his father's gin. He'd been defending his ma, trying to be a man. What stands out to me first in that section is, well, we're we're thrust back into the scene. Again, it's very kind of cinematic. We have this close-up on the sneakers as he's running Mm -hmm. towards the father and the son. And then all of a sudden... The logic of the poem where fathers stick with sons, where there's duos, and the word we refers to just me and my dad or him and me, suddenly that widens out a little bit. We have three people standing in the middle of the road together. Um, Lots of things in middle of the road in this poem. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it is about kind of the in-between spaces, crossing neighborhoods, bridging families. Um, Mm -hmm. And what happens when he runs up to us looking wounded and thin? Well, in a very straight-faced way, Hayes lists three, I think, kind of irreconcilable or three alternatives for what could have happened. Um, He doesn't say what happened that provoked 
the father hitting the son because he doesn't know or he isn't told. Um, maybe he'd been caught lying. Um, maybe he'd been drinking his father's gin, which makes him sound like one of the pool players in Seven at the Golden right. Shovel. Or, but maybe he, it's something completely different. He'd been defending his ma, trying to be a man. Again, I this is one of those moments where I think we have a kid kind of um, osmosing adult speech. Uh, trying right. to be a man sounds like something like a very gruff, angry, offended man would say. You trying to mm-hmm. be a man? Mm-hmm. Um, Hayes is someone, I think, who who writes particularly response poems, particularly a poem like this that 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 looks at another poet and poem to imagine alternate ways things could have gone to imagine a multiplicity of forms of black life and black poetry. And one of the possibilities he, he weighs here is that yes, this kid was just like the pool players from we real cool. He's drinking gin. He's lying. He's staying out late, but he also considers it could also have been the the complete opposite. Um, He's, he's a, a boy who's standing by the women in his life. He's a boy trying to who, protect the family, not fleeing yeah, yeah. from it. Yeah, exactly. Um, he might. I mean, he he could be a hero. He could be, I guess, kind of like the antihero of of Brooks's poem. We can't really know. In a different kind of poem that was written after the Brooks poem, you, you might have thought that this moment of speculation that what would have the things that would have offered the alternatives would each have been, would each have had their analogs in the Brooks poem and that, Mm -hmm. and that the poet would have been uh, constrained or sort of tethered to those alternatives because of the formal trick he was playing. But what you've just shown us, Chris, is that that's one of the three options, but there are two others that are indicating a kind of, um, I, I, well, I don't, I don't mean to be like too cute about this, but a kind of like lightheadedness, right? Yeah, that the, I think, um, no, I think so. That there is that that Hayes has a relationship to the Brooks poem, but is also not um, bound to it, not right, earthbound yeah. by it. Sure, yeah. I think no, I I I think the the possibilities are dizzying. I think is mm-hmm. one suggestion of a title like lighthead. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one way we could go through the poem, and I don't think we should, but it's an exercise for home, for <laughs> uh, loyal listeners, is you can go through the N-words and you can see how closely is Hayes adhering to what Brooks did? How mm-hmm. much is he deviating? Well, I and mean, he's one, using the word, but what you mean is like, is yeah. he using it in a different context or a different right. sense? Right. Is he drawing or... out different connotations? Right. Is he mm-hmm. changing part of speech? I find... Uh, the boy looking wounded and thin is extremely poignant on its own as a visual mm-hmm, image, mm-hmm. but as a way to reuse thin the verb as in thinning gin mm-hmm. and to kind of just put it onto a, a boy who's defenseless and coming up to you asking right. for some help or a model of how to behave. I I find that really moving. It's it's a departure. I mean that 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 is um, a real departure then, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the the. Um... <laughs> There's a real um, sense of contrast that I get that comes in the lines that follow that um, set of speculations about what might have provoked this violence that um, Hayes and his father witnessed when the when this other father struck his son. 
We stood in the road, and my father talked about jazz, how sometimes a tune is born of outrage. That, the, sorry, the, those lines are interesting, and, and I'm sure you'll have something to say about them. But when I said there was a real note of contrast, what I'd had in mind was the sentence I'm about to read. By June, the boy would be locked upstate. Um, that doesn't seem to give multiplicity of future. That that both in its content and in its form seems to lock up this boy's future into a state of um, uh, definition, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of um, of a, has a you know this literally carceral kind mm-hmm. of logic to it. So um, where where does that certainty come from? If what preceded it was um, ambiguity and uncertainty about what had led to this. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And that line, along with um, the earlier line of the act of violence, is, to me, the chillingest line in the poem. Mm -hmm. Um, We're very near the end of the poem. And at the end, at the second to last couplet, to introduce words like locked and then the very odd upstate in a yeah. poem which has had up until now really no consideration of of what a state is what they do to people where where we even are um which has up until now really never entertained the possibility that boys wouldn't stay at home with their fathers um mm-hmm. or be there by their side the whole time is really striking um well mm-hmm. un, really not intended there mm-hmm. um yeah, i hear you well I mean, I think this is kind of something that Hayes, how do I put this? Hayes is someone, as I've said, who who thrives on being of two or three or 23 minds. Um, when I wrote about him, I quote this interview passage I really do love where he says, uh, I'm sorry for the pun, but I'm like not really a black and white person. I'm kind of a between area, gray area person. Uh, I love that because it's a fantastic self-portrait. And also, I love the conversational kind of and not really and like, which is just like the perfect uh-huh. verbal uh-huh. manifestation of that um, amb- ambivalence. Um, I think the line you've brought us to is a moment where ambivalence, ambivalence meets something it can't overcome. It, it, it hits up against the state. It hits up against laws. It hits up against a carceral system that forecloses possibilities instead of allowing them to open. That's great, Chris. And I didn't mean to step on your, your your final words there. Oh no. um, Is that perspective coming in a kind of free and direct discourse mode from the father? Like, is that something the father says to the son, right? We, we, let me back up again. We stood in the road and my father talked about jazz, how sometimes a tune is born of outrage. By June, the boy would be locked up state. I mean, is that um, so? There are a couple of alternatives now. As I say, that yeah. line doesn't admit of of um, ambiguity. Now I'm going to introduce a few. It, it, by one way of reading, that the father talks about jazz. The father says this thing about how sometimes a tune is born out of outrage. And the father says, though it's a new sentence, we can just go on reading in that mode. And the father says that boy's going to be locked up by June. Um, or is it? the perspective is the certainty born of the perspective that the mature poet has 
earned through historical experience. That is, he knows what happened to that boy. He doesn't know what had happened before that, but he knows that this kid from his neighborhood got sent away by that June. And so it's certain because it's historical. Yeah. My yeah. sense of the chronology is mm-hmm. that it's it's the latter option mm-hmm. you've kind of laid out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also I also get that sense by just how different these two sentences are and kind of the knowledge they're they're mm. telling us about um i'm not a father i've never had to <laughs> do something like this but this father dad and maybe this is the only time he's called my father in the poem mm. um he's been given this kind of impossible moral assignment which is he is standing in front of his son who has witnessed violence he's standing in front of someone else's son Mm-hmm. who was uh, the victim of violence, and he has to come up with something to say. Um, and not just violence, but violence from a father. From a father, exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I've written poems, and I know they're hard, but I've never had to do something, yeah. I think, that difficult. And even though I think it seems kind of like a, a hokey thing a dad would do is, well, I'll talk about jazz in this moment. Maybe I'll, mm. I'll find some moral in that. Um I do think he's, I find it very poignant, this moment of a, a father who's kind of suddenly in the role of a poet or a speaker trying to articulate some moral that doesn't make family life just seem awful. And the moral um, in this case is that um, terrible things can happen, but some, I mean, not to be, not to put too fine a point on it, but that um, beautiful songs can be born of, of pain. I think, and with maybe an emphasis on the word can, <laughs> right. an emphasis on sometimes this happens, I can't guarantee it. Right. Um, it's funny. I mean, a tune is born of outrage is mm-hmm. the the sentence we're trying to wrap our heads around. Mm-hmm. And it may be just one of these unparaphrasable things because born is, is the perfect word, I think, mm. for how uh, violence, how um, betrayal, um, begets beauty, possibly, or begets some sort of of soul making out of this. You know what I'm um, thinking of, Chris. This this is um, um, this is. The, I'm I'm sorry. I'm thinking of the Philip Larkin poem. <laughs> you know, this be the verse, mm-hmm. which this seems like the anti version of that. You know, yeah. man hands on misery to man. Um, yeah, yeah, and. And this this seems like um, sorry. I'm sort of laughing to myself because I think so far we've managed to maintain our um, no explicit language in, pod, in the podcast uh, rating thing. So I can't. It was I, bound I, to happen. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going <laughs> to. Maybe I shouldn't quote the whole poem, but look it up. Philip Larkin's "This Be the Verse." It's another good poem to memorize. But it um, it seems maybe like the. Um, like this is presenting a kind of alternative to that dismal model Uh of you know uh parent child relation yes um parent child also maybe parent neighbor's child yeah um what are ways we can hand down things that aren't just genetic and deterministic and and i don't know compounding misery over time yeah Um, okay he does it the only f word he uses is father (laughs) he keeps a pg very good, Chris. T- tell us now about the last, you know, two and a half lines the um, uh, of the poem, which, 
you know, I, I'm sh- I want you to read for us. Yeah. And remind us what they are and then and then talk about what so wild what's happening in them in terms of um, where voice is coming from and um, given yeah. all the context we have in this poem. So I, I would love to, you know, to hear you say a few words about those last lines. Yeah, um, it is. I mean, I, it's good that we've kind of broken up the poem in this way because we're going to have another scene change for the very last lines. And it's going to be the, I think, the third and last time this that dad is going to say something. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a poem about speech acts and the ways we talk to each other and what that can do. And we're going to get one last one right now. That night we got down on our knees in my room. If I should die before I wake, dad said to me, it will be too soon. Mm. Um, so that night, meaning the night of, I think, Mm-hmm. Well, now I don't know. Yeah, is that it the pool, I... the pool hall night, or is it the violence, the the night of violence night? I had presumed the latter. I think it's yeah. I think it's the latter. Um, right, because that night is reorienting us after by June. So mm-hmm. yes, uh, the night the father has has had to talk about jazz in front of his son and their neighbor's son. Um, they're now it's now bedtime, and their dad is seemingly saying a common bedtime prayer um which i never recited growing up but i've <laughs> looked up um and, and maybe not everybody knows it so, so yeah so say what it is yeah um if i got it right um see this is really the proof if i'm a good massachusetts if i should die before i wake citizen. i pray the lord my soul my, to take yeah. right and then if i should so no i think it starts um, now I lay me down to sleep. Yeah. I pray the Lord my soul, soul to, to keep. keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Right. Just beautifully grim. You know, you know how you <laughs> want to go to bed. Yeah. Uh, just <laughs> night, night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so dad doesn't say that. He says the first line. Um, again, I've kind of compared him to a poet before and I, I don't think it's that whimsical. I think he is someone who's, taking traditions, taking received language and revising them to make them more apt and true and beautiful. Instead of saying, if I should die before I wake, I pray the sword, the Lord, my soul to take. He says, if I should die before I wake, it will be too soon, mm-hmm. which does not rhyme. It does not fit the meter. If anything, it fits the meter of we real cool where line monosyllables mm-hmm. just pile up and thud. Mm-hmm. but it's a, it's the truer statement for this dad. Um, He's not someone who's going to leave uh, grace and education and uh, a true relationship between a father and son. He's not going to leave that to the afterlife. And all throughout mm. this poem, which has been filled with uh, ghosts and shadows and spookiness and violence, um, we've had this threat underlying all of it. The threat that that maybe will make it seem like someone will die before they wake. Mm. And Dad is honestly saying, if that happens, that's not enough time. Mm-hmm. Um, not enough time to be a father with a son. Not enough time to educate you. Um, I mean, not enough time even just to play with sock puppets or play pool. Mm-hmm. And so I, I find it really yeah, moving. I mean, I talked is. about how a lot of the poem changed for me this week. And uh, it just seemed so heartbreaking this time around. Now that I didn't have to write about it for you know an academic article. Which are not exclusive things at all, but um, 
the emotional tug of the poem was just so evident to me this time. The um, well, that's that's palpable for me, and I'm and I'm I'm really grateful that you've shared that with us. The um, the spirit of of what the father says at the end, and it, you know, part of what's interesting to me is that. So that night we got down on our knees in my room. I mean, I'm I'm trying to sort of accentuate the what, what's a little bit yeah. surprising about mm-hmm. the pronouns there. So it's our knees, but then it's my room. The we we go immediately into um, spoken language that's indicated typographically with italics. Mm-hmm. Um, if I should die before I wake, but we don't get the attribution of those words until that moment. So it's maybe unclear when you're first reading it, whether that's a prayer the son is reciting, yeah. whether they're saying it together, what it sounds oh, like a prayer, that. but it yeah. turns out that it's not even one at all. Dad said to me, not dad prayed with me or what, you know, yeah. it's just a thing he's saying being sort of witty perhaps, but, maybe just saying something that he wants to say, it will be too soon. What I was going to say about it is that it, it revises dramatically the um, what's shocking maybe about the ending of the Brooks poem. Yes. We die soon. Yeah. And, you know, I was reading that poem with students recently um, and there was this kind of instinctive desire I was noticing on their part to take the ending of the Brooks poem as indicating that the poem was like a cautionary tale about what will happen if you drop out of school. Yeah. Right. But the, and maybe that's the case. I, I don't know, but it seems like from the perspective of the we who speak that poem, there's, there's something kind of heroic about mm-hmm. we die soon. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. the, you know, um, um, it's better to burn out than fade away kind of line, sure. but and rendered said, in a different idiom. Yeah. And, and this better seems in their own idiom. Yeah. I mean, yeah. In yeah. words they can take pride in. And get yeah. But, but, yeah. but, th- but this, this position seems to reverse that one. It's like got no patience for it really ultimately. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if I should die before I wake, it will be too soon. You know, like I, mm-hmm. I want to live long. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 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 It is. I mean, yes, I think if you were, to play the, the the game of going through it and seeing where Hayes coincides with Brooks and where he branches yeah. off. I mean, at the very end of the poem, he's he's going perpendicular. Yeah. Um, if I mean, not to bring it always back to we, um, even though I have you written should. a whole book on it, so why not? Um, in We Real Cool, we is one generation. It's argumentative. It's us versus them. It's about to disappear. We die soon. And the we we get when these two kneel down in this mm-hmm. room is a very different kind. It's intergenerational. It's accepting. It's loving. It doesn't want to go away. Mm. Um, I do love, I mean, w- the way you, you described uh, this very peculiar act of prayer. Um, it does remind me of this distinction that Helen Venler makes in the, um, a book on address where she talks about how prayers are usually vertical addresses. Mm-hmm. We're usually talking to someone above us, whether it's mm-hmm. a God or a nightingale or mm-hmm. an abstraction, but a poet like Whitman who meets you face to face is talking horizontally. Mm-hmm. Um, he's talking to an equal and equivalent uh, comrade. Mm-hmm. And one very clever thing about this ending is um 
Hayes or dad takes the prayer that should be vertical and he addresses it to his son. Oh, I love it. It suddenly is, is something that instead of suggesting vast difference between who's down here and, and the God being talked to up here, it's binding two people together, like literally at, at face level. On and, their knees. And, and they're on their knees. And so whatever, yeah. you know, height is diminished. <laughs> Yeah, right? it's this, but but not, yeah, yeah. not you know, and okay. Um, it's a sweet moment. It's it's not a poem that I think takes a stand on religion very heavily. Right. No, um, I think maybe one cool thing about the word squeaky Bible is you can read many things <laughs> into it as we did. And sin and sin is it seems to be a word it and means very well. Mm. Um, but by the end of the poem, it it does seem like we have a kind of secular prayer, a prayer that can be recited from father to a son. And yeah. back. Um, it's one of many things in the poem that's about communication, about bridging difference, mm. about crossing the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and I let's just zoom out from the poem on a line by line level a bit. I think that's that's one thing Hayes is trying to do with the literary past. One thing he's doing when he writes after Gwendolyn Brooks is he's in a very odd way, he's collaborated with someone who's not alive. Right. <laughs> um He's Absolutely. put her words in her order. Um, he's respected their meanings. Sometimes he's added on to them, but um, he's not negated any of them. And, and um, in that same spirit, he's sharing it with his audience, as we heard, right? Yeah. He's not um, mm-hmm. presenting his poem as a kind of rarefied object to them. Either. No, yeah. Um, it is, I mean, it's kind of like the more conceptual we of the poem is is the 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 we that stands for both Hayes and Gwendolyn Brooks. Yeah. Or the we that's any poet who who turns to Brooks's poetry and writes a golden shovel out of it. Well, Chris, um, we've gone so long and we could go much longer, I think. Um, but I'm afraid we can't. There's so much we didn't talk about having that we sort of promised to talk about having to do with the um the um uh, influence of this poem, the poets who have written their own golden shovels, the, um, you know, giving that kind of context. We'll do that. Um, I'll do that. And I'll do it with your help. So I mean, we really, Chris, um, <laughs> in the newsletter that goes out with, with the episode. But since we've gone this long, why not go another two minutes um, and and just let people hear the poem one more time in your voice? Um, Chris, would you read the golden shovel for us? I'd love to. And again, thanks for having me on. Um, It does seem like a good poem for a podcast like this, because (laughs) it is about, I don't know, people approaching language at the same time and Mm. making out of one small poetic text something wider and more capacious. So, The Golden Shovel, after Gwendolyn Brooks. When I am so small, Daz's sock covers my arm. We cruise at twilight until we find the place the real men lean, bloodshot and translucent with cool. His smile is a gold-plated incantation as we drift by women on barstools, with nothing left in them but approachlessness. This is a school I do not know yet. But the cue sticks mean we are rubbed by light, smooth as wood, the lurk of smoke thinned to song. We won't be out late. Standing in the middle of the street last night, we 
watch the moonlit lawns and a neighbor strike his son in the face. A shadow knocked straight. Dad promised to leave me everything. The shovel we used to bury the dog, the words he loved to sing, his rusted pistol, his squeaky Bible, his sin. The boy's sneakers were light on the road. We watched him run to us, looking wounded and thin. He'd been caught lying or drinking his father's gin. He'd been defending his ma, trying to be a man. We stood in the road, and my father talked about jazz, how sometimes a tune is born of outrage. By June, the boy would be locked upstate. That night, we got down on our knees in my room. If I should die before I wake, Dad said to me, it will be too soon. Well, Chris Spade, thank you so much for being on the podcast and spending the last uh, hour plus with me talking about this beautiful poem. Um, I learned a lot from you and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Um, Thank you all listeners for um, making it this far. Stay tuned. There will be more episodes coming soon. Be well, everyone.